This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Today, we're going to go a little bit different direction, if you will, and talk about mistakes, mistakes that Josh and I have made when buying and selling property, as well as some mistakes that we're seeing out there in the market at the moment with both buyers and sellers. There's this belief that Josh and I don't understand what people out there are going through or what they've been through in the past. And that because we're out here educating both buyers and sellers, that we've got it all figured out and there's never been any mistakes. And so... We both thought it was important to maybe talk about those mistakes and bring back some stories, if you will, some reminders, because it might help some of those out there that are in the market struggling with the same things and help understand that we've both been where you have been and there are still options out there to become a homeowner. Josh, when I say mistakes, what comes to mind? Everything, errors of omission and then errors of commission. What are the things that you didn't do that you could have, should have, would have done? What are the things that you did do that were dumb, suboptimal, not likely to work out well for you? I will say most everyone in my family, I come from a family middle class, very middle class, no one really wealthy, no one made tons of money, and they've all enjoyed very comfortable retirements largely due to real estate investments. And we talk here about real estate being a get rich slow scheme. It very much so was. We're not talking about they were buying and selling houses, investing in stuff, rotating up into new properties. It was largely buying, paying the mortgage down, not taking cash out and arriving at retirement with one or two properties with very low mortgages and a lot of value in them. Relating that back, we're gonna go through things that you've done, things that I've done. We've been on very different paths. Although, Jeb, viewers at home are gonna say, these guys look like they're the exact same age. I am a little bit older and wiser than you. So I have about five more years of experience, both, both good and bad on you. And we'll go through that. And even you talk about people today saying, you don't understand, because Jeb, you got into the market 22, 23 years ago. Josh, 27, 28 Not years ago. That many, but yes. That's true. But there's always headwinds. There's always problems. I will relate it back to this, Jeb. One of those people who did very well in real estate in my life is my aunt. She's retired, owns her home free and clear, sold a free and clear home that was their second home in Havasu, made a ton of money off of that. But when we bought our current home in 2003, she told me, she says, you are insane. I paid $580,000 for my house in 2003. She goes, that's crazy. House will never be worth that. You're going to lose your ass and you should never do that. And that is the view of someone who bought her first home, very similar to mine, but she bought it in 1972 for, I believe, $36,000. So when you hear $580,000, it's crazy. So don't feel like we're looking and saying, hey, Go buy an $850,000 starter home, and that's normal or rational or easy. It wasn't easy buying that house for $580,000 in 2003 either. So everything has to be in its proper context and realize that it's really easy for us to look back and say it was easy for my aunt in 1972 as a grocery store checker and her husband who drove a gasoline truck for Union 76 that they were able to buy that house because it was only $36,000. Yeah, 
But once we got to the 80s, interest rates had shot up, home values had gone up in the expensive parts of the country. It has never been easy for anyone. So it's not easy today. It wasn't easy 20 years ago. It wasn't easy 40 years ago. It may be more difficult today than it has been. It doesn't mean that you just punt on the decision and say, I'm not getting into real estate because it's too difficult because the end result of what it does for your finances by fixing your housing costs, accumulating equity, getting leverage on your side is worth figuring out how to make it happen. So we're going to reverse engineer that today by talking about the dumb things that Josh and Jeb have done. <laughs> we're definitely going to do that. And, and I'll start because I think I probably have the biggest and dumbest of them all. And that was buying a house at the peak in 2006, new construction. For those of you who don't know, and many don't, I was actually married prior to being married to my wife now for a very short period of time. That relationship, we were both in the mortgage business. She was a wholesale account executive, made a lot more money than I made, big numbers. And that was a time when money was very easily made because of loan programs and housing and all of these different things. And so we had bought well, and sold Jeb, a couple of Jeb, homes. one thing on that, not only easily made, easily borrowed. Oh, so yeah. especially for a high income earner, you could have bought any property you wanted at that time. Yep. Realistically, with you and Tony's income, could have bought any property anywhere in the U.S. with the income you were making and how easy it was. And we did on several occasions. And we made some money on different properties. And we'll talk about one of the others here in a moment. But we bought a property, new construction, downtown Huntington Beach, $1.6 million, put 10% down, so $160,000 down, financed the rest. And little did we know we were buying at the peak in the market. Now, what I will say is that the decision to buy that house was more on her than it was on me, largely because she was making the income. She basically had way more savings than I had at that time. And the decision was largely on her. That's where she wanted to be. I just went along with it, honestly, not really asking a lot of questions. I was young, 24 at the time. And that ended up being a mistake on several different levels, but the largest one really not thinking it through, but buying that property, putting 10% down, we ended up selling that property for, I think, just over a million bucks, maybe a million one. Was it a million? I can't remember if it was a million one sixty or a million sixty. Either way, it was about a 30 plus percent loss on that property. And it ended up being a short sale on that deal. Obviously, property went bye-bye and- that was the time her and I were actually no longer together either. So everything went by at once. And fortunately, property was in her name. I was on title. It didn't affect my credit on that particular property. Now, what could have been avoided or done differently so that those mistakes weren't made? Honestly, a number of things, but the biggest one was she went, I went for making a lot of money. And I say a lot, I'm not going to boast or brag or whatever on the numbers, but essentially large six-figure incomes. And they went down to essentially nothing during that period of time because of the changes in housing and what have you. And we made the choice, right or wrong, to walk away from the property and do what we did, even with money in the bank. Now, people will look at that and go, Jeb, you basically used the system, you had money, whatever. It was what it was. But we chose to keep money in the bank and let credit go. In this case, the credit didn't affect me, so it was less of a decision on my side, but decided to keep money versus continuing to pay for something that we didn't think was going to come back within a reasonable amount of time, and our relationship was essentially done. So, better part of 
five or so years later, things were different. And we'll talk about that. But Josh, that was a huge mistake. We both knew that the market was changing. Conversations were being had. I was having it with clients at the time. I just didn't think we thought it was going to happen as fast as it did and affect both of us as quickly as it did. I wrote a report with Doug Fabian, financial advisor with a mutual fund newsletter that I was his mortgage expert at the time. We wrote like a 30-page report giving you every reason why we thought home prices were going to drop at that point in time. And it's almost cute in retrospect. We say, hey, we think home values are going to drop 20%. And in retrospect, 20% would have been awesome. Yeah. If you had that house at 1.6 and it only dropped 20%, you guys may, absent the divorce, have made a different decision because it was a bitching house. You may have tried to fight and save it. And you said something there that's important that I think everyone should note. It was a decision and it was a decision within your rights and for anyone else at that time. When it works out, a lender makes a lot of money on the interest over the life of the loan. When it doesn't work out, they made the loan based off of the collateral. You're not signing your life away. You're not saying that you can't walk away from it. You're not saying that you will sell every other asset to make this loan good. Many people choose that route and that's what feels right for them. But a secured loan is exactly that. I am pledging this house to borrow this money and to make those payments. When it doesn't work out, the lender gets the house. That's the way it works. They don't get anything else in that situation, including other assets that you may have. So when I look back at that situation, as long as you go in eyes wide open and knowing where you are at in the cycle, in the market, we had a lot of bad loans out there. We had a lot of people with limited equity who had bought late in the cycle. And those bad loans were what was leading us to believe that the 20% downturn was coming. So when you compare and contrast that to now, the similarity in the market is that prices are elevated. Prices are at a near-term high. If you look on real terms, I believe we're still a little bit below that level in terms of real values once you account for inflation. But as a buyer in today's market, the lesson that you take from that is there's definitely a yellow flag out there. You shouldn't, if you're not certain in your relationship, you're not certain in your income, you're putting a minimum down and you haven't been making money very long. Definitely is a market to be cautious. Whereas in that situation, you guys wanted what you wanted and bought a bitch in house. And again, the hindsight being 2020, you say it was the wrong decision, but it may not have been the wrong decision on no, the way in. Like a lot of people at that time, cars were what was important in life. Houses were what was important. And none of those things matter at all. Watches, all of the things that mean absolutely nothing, provide zero real value in your life were things that were important to me at that time. My values have changed. A lot has changed since then. But I think that's where the podcast really stems from, Josh, is it's the idea of educating home buyers that, hey, listen, for one, you can make mistakes and still use housing and buy housing and still get to where you want to get for one, but also using the podcast as a platform to teach people about some of the things that I was aware of, but really not even paying attention to myself in detail and educating myself on these things. And I think that's important. People wonder, why do you do this? That's part of the reason. I've been there. I've been in your shoes. I've been in those positions. And I think it's important to look back at that and try to teach from it. And so here we are. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. One of the things, yeah. Jeb, that I think that they're going to see here is we talk about errors of omission, errors of commission. In real terms, you are more, I'm aggressive, but you're more aggressive and bolder than I am. So the things that you're talking about are almost, you took action. You made actions and the actions didn't work out well. Josh deliberated, when we get to that section, deliberated and thought a little too much and didn't do things that would have made a big difference. So there'll be two two sides to it. But with that, do you want to transition to the properties that you sold? Yeah, the yeah, yeah. So at the same time, happened to own two rental properties out of state, had an investor that I was working with here in California, owned a bunch of property, 70 plus properties, I believe at the time. And he was buying in markets that he thought were going to appreciate over time. And let's be honest, the guy was spot on in everything he did. He did his homework. He was looking for growth in population, growth in jobs, healthcare, just infrastructure, things that were going to bring people to a city. And at the time, he had properties in Surprise, Arizona, Las Vegas, the markets that were booming at the time. And these are the markets that got hit quite a bit. St. George, Utah was another And then he was buying property in Boise and Lexington, Kentucky and some places in Florida. And so he basically, he would go in, he would create these cohorts of groups, find new construction builders, basically work a deal with them and say, hey, listen, I've got 15 investors, 20 investors are going to come in. We're all going to buy a property, two properties, whatever. And then he would find the property manager and basically set it all up. It was a good deal for him. One, because he got something out of it, less fees, different things. And for investors that were smart enough to keep their properties, they did well in these markets. And I will say that I wish I still owned them. But because of everything that was happening with Property One that we talked about a moment ago, life changes in divorce and income and all of these other things, I owned a Property One in Boise and one in Lexington. Bought the one in Boise for 189 back in November of 2005. Ended up selling that property as a short sale for 140000 Now, what's important to note here, never missed any payments on these properties, never let my credit get ruined. I just continued to pay the mortgage. In fact, both the properties cash flowed, which was crazy, right? And I still decided to sell them for less money at the time because I had unknowns. I was going through a divorce. Business was changing. I was transitioning into real estate full-time at that time, just making less money. And quite frankly, just scared about the market. I let emotions dictate decisions. And I always say that people buy emotionally, justify logically. In this case, I was doing similar things, right? I was selling emotionally and then using that logic to justify it, but ended up selling it for 140,000. Today, again, hindsight's 2020. Today, that property on Zillow of all places is worth like 435,000. So would have been a nice, nice property to have Rents would have gone up. It would have appreciated. It would have done a lot of things. Similar story in Lexington. Purchased for 173 in April of 06. Sold it for 142, 235. Estimate today is 347 thousand dollars. So had I just continued to do my plan, let the tenant pay the mortgage, and whatever, maybe there wasn't a lot of cash flow there, but just continue to pay the mortgage, I would have had equity. I would have paid down the principal. I would have had write-offs. I would have done a number of different things by just letting real estate do what it does best. And that's appreciate over time, Josh. That's the bulk of my mistakes there. 
Yeah. The interesting part to that, to me, is the decision that when it was cash flowing, it wasn't bleeding you dry. It was an easy decision. A lot of people overpaid for properties later in the cycle that didn't cash flow. You didn't really have a choice. It's, hey, the best and easiest way out of here is to do a short sale. Dings my credit a little bit, but it gets it off of there, satisfies the debt and can move on. So with that big picture, just know what the purpose is of property. If you're buying it as an investment, we do have a lot of investors in the market wanting to get in the market. And I will say Mike Cantu, a guy out in Riverside area owns hundreds, maybe not hundreds, but high single, high double digits, 70, 80, 90 houses. He says every house that he buys has a purpose. It's going to do this. It's going to pay for my retirement. It's going to pay for my kid's college. It's going to cash flow and it's going to pay for my car payment. So know what the purpose is of a property. And if it's meeting that objective, try to not be emotional about it. Remembering, Jeb, there's a limit to the lessons that can be learned from your situation because that was the perfect storm. It was the mother of all real estate crashes. As much as people would like to believe we're going to see that again, we will never ever see anything like that again. We can have a downturn. You can lose 10. You could possibly lose 20%. You lost 35% on a trophy home near the beach. Inland areas lost 50, 60% of their value. Other parts of the country lost 50, 60% of their value. We're never going to see that again, even in a potential bad downturn. But it's important to just think through everything on the way in. So we talk about difference of errors of commission versus errors of omission. When I look at this, I had a plan when I first got into the business. I graduated in 95, started doing loans at the end of 1995. So it's funny to me that people buying homes and making the biggest investment of their life and the biggest debt would look at a 22-year-old who graduated from college six months ago and didn't own anything but a car and would take advice on what to do, but they did. So thankfully, over 27 years, we've learned a thing or two. But I had a realtor who was helping a couple of different investors buy distressed four unit buildings in two pretty high priced areas in Orange County, here in Huntington Beach and over in Westside, Costa Mesa. So both those areas have pockets that are lower end areas. And at that time, they were picking up fourplexes for under $300,000. Now these were distressed, they needed work, but I'm sitting here saying, I live at home with my dad, I live rent free, I can buy this, as an owner occupant, I can get them dialed in, can live there for a period of time, convert it to a rental, and it will be the easiest way to ever acquire units at good terms. And in the big perspective, it would have absolutely worked out perfectly. Those properties, again, we could get them for a little less than 300. At that time, a full renovation on a 3,000 square foot floor plan. It's actually closer to 4,000, about a 4,000 square foot fourplex. You could do a full renovation on them rental grade for about $65,000. You're into them for 365. You have a loan of about 350. Now, rents weren't great at that time. It would have brought in about $3,000 of rent. With 8% mortgages, it would have been a $3,000 payment. But again, I'm living at home. This thing breaks even. Now I have an investment that's giving me some tax shelter, is building up equity. And as we all know now in hindsight, you would have ridden the interest rates down. Those properties today, I haven't even looked at Westside Costa Mesa, but approaching $2 million, well over 1 1.5, 1.6, 1.7. Oh, if I'm that. into them, for probably more than that. I try not to think about it, Jeb. Yeah, I downplay it in my head. It's not as it's not as bad as what you thought. 
So if we had just got one of those, and the funny thing is both of the investors that were buying at that time got super aggressive. They bought tons of them and then also went through divorces and lost most of them because they were just pulling cash out as the market changed. These things were cash flowing. They did the right thing, acquired, each of them had five, six, seven of these buildings. And that's life-changing. If they had just done the right thing, just got them rehabbed, got them rented, ridden the market up, they would be sitting here with millions of dollars of equity and tens of thousands of dollars a month. The rent on those now, $3,000 in 1997, total more or less was the rents. Today, you're talking 2,500 for the two bedrooms, even say on the low end, 2,200. So 4,200, probably 3,000 for the bedroom and a little one, like $9,000 a month rent. So it would have been a life-changing investment. Now, don't feel bad for me. The reason why we didn't do it is we had an opportunity that same realtor had a seller with a condo here in Huntington Beach and they wanted to sell it. And it was a great opportunity. And it was a couple blocks over from where Jeb's house was that he lost. And it was a bitchin' area and we got it. And it was a cool house and it was a great deal. And we made a lot of money on that. But in hindsight, the trophy property and getting that pretty thing that my soon to be wife and I liked kept us from getting a, a thing that was a much bigger and better investment. And when I look back at that, Jeb, what is the lesson? It's on that first property, it's not about what's going to be the coolest or the prettiest or the most enjoyable. It's what's going to set me up best for the long haul. That could be having the lowest payment so that you can save more money. It could be possibly appreciating more over the long haul. It could be what would set up as a rental when you move on to your next property. But what other lessons do you think that a listener could glean from my experience there, Jeb? I think you, you nailed it there. It made me think of yesterday I was driving in my car, driving to see a client in Long Beach, and I popped on Instagram stories and did a quick story about answering the question, who is buying in this market? That's the question that a lot of people are asking. Who is buying in this market with prices, quote unquote, inflated and rates at near-term highs or what have you? And it was a really good example because I was going over to a client's property that I helped him buy in 2015, 2016, somewhere in that ballpark, small two bedroom, two bath at the time, him and his now wife were just dating, no kids, no pets, nothing. And now he has essentially outgrown that property, has a daughter who's now three, has a large lab, lives on a second story of a condo building, downtown Long Beach. And the property just no longer works for their life. Now, What's nice is when they originally bought it, mom had to co-sign with them because of income. Didn't help them pay the mortgage, just co-signed to allow the financing to actually take place. Now they're in a position where they have equity in that property. They have enough to put 20% plus down on the property that they're buying because they took that initial step, bought the first property that wasn't perfect, but it matched where they were at that time in their life. They're now looking at a single family home a higher price. Mom no longer has to be on the loan to qualify because now their income, so they have better paying jobs and just in a better position in life in order to take advantage of, of what they want to buy. And they're buying at a time where rates are high. Chances are rates are going to come back down and give them an opportunity to lower that payment even further. So, you know, that it's using that property as a stepping stone. Now, for some people, that might be their only property and that's okay. But what I see people doing, and we're going to talk about this, is getting caught up on having to find the perfect property with everything that is dialed in to start with because they're watching Joanna Gaines, because they're watching different people, Jasmine on, on HGTV, do all of these properties. And that's what we want. We all want that. But the reality is a lot of us aren't able to get that. And so instead of just saying, hell with it, if I can't get that, I'm going to get nothing. You see 
how that works out over time. And so I think it's a really good example of taking the step when it's the right time in your life, as long as you're comfortable with it, as long as you're comfortable with the payments and you're comfortable being in that position. So that's what I got from that. And moving on from that, I would say my biggest mistake is not buying and holding more of the properties that we acquired through that flip period. So those of you that are longtime listeners know two things that from 2008 to 2012, 13, primarily existed off of buying and selling homes for a profit. We were still doing loans, but we're talking 20% of the loans that we were doing prior to the downturn. So the only way to pay the bills and make ends meet was do other stuff. And that was the opportunity in the market at that time. And if you've listened for a long time, you've also heard me say that I would scream to anyone from 2009, 2010 on that if you are renting and you are in a position in your life that it makes sense for you to own, this is insanity. So we primarily bought in the Anaheim area. So central Orange County, strong first time buyer area. And we were picking up homes when we started 220 to 260. And again, a fifty dollars to $60,000 renovation at that time would be a full renovation, roof, windows, bathrooms, kitchens, flooring, doors, molding, everything that you touched in a house was brand new. So for three dollars to $325,000, you had a brand new home. And at that time, the rents were $22,000, $2,400 for those houses, and a mortgage on them would have been $21,000, $2,200. So we did close to 40 properties. I look back, Jeb, the ones that you and I always get a chuckle out of, even late in the cycle. In 2015, you had a seller that bought a unique property that had two single families attached to it, and they didn't want them. So we bought them for a hair under 400000 they were in decent shape, we did a minor renovation on each one of about $35,000, and we sold them for just over $500,000. So it was a nice profit, rang the cash register in the short run. But in looking at those, at that time, I'm just sitting there going, I don't see a world where these get to more than, say, $600,000. The cash flow is basically break even unless we put money into them, and I would rather have the cash right Big now. yards, too. Could have done an ADU. Big yards. I mean, these revived. All sorts of things. Yeah. All sorts of things. And we look back now, Jeb, oh, and those homes are closing in on 800000 despite all of the drawbacks, the negatives that I saw. So those are just two of the best examples. Now, I'm not going to beat myself up too bad. I own two properties that we bought through that timeline that are worth, one is about two and a half times what we paid for it. And the other one is about three times what we paid for it. Both of those had fairly extensive renovations, but we did good when we should have crushed it looking around. It, my brain telling potential home owners, home buyers, you should be doing this. I should have found a way to do more of it. I look back and I say, Jeb, my big lesson is I limited myself to the cash that I and my partner had available to us. So we pooled our money and we would use hard money loans and what our assets plus those hard money loans, that's how many we could do. I had it to do over again, starting in 2009, I would go out to anyone who had $5 in the bank and try and raise a couple million dollars and be doing five, six, seven of them at a time and keeping as many of them as possible. Because the one thing, the thought that always occurred to me at that time, people ask, Who's buying in this market? What if owners sell their properties? What if the hedge funds sell? One of the things that occurred to me at that time, there are a lot of seniors. So say you're 70 years old and you retired in 2009. You have your money in the bank and you're getting less than 1% return on that money. 
if you put $300,000 into one of these houses and you have the cash flow off that, again, $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year off of your $300,000 versus less than $3,000. Plus, you were going to get the appreciation over time and you would have some tax benefits. So all of the things went through my head of why this was the right thing to do, but just didn't step out and acquire more of them either because of the risk of taking cash flow out of circulation or not truly being committed to the process. Good lessons nonetheless, right? Again, like you said, two sides of it, right? One of us has a tendency to shoot first and ask questions later. The other one has a tendency to think, overthink in some cases and not take the actual action. So there's not a right or wrong plan. I've benefited in many ways by having my method, but I also have regrets in some of the stuff that I've done too quickly without thinking it through as well. Another that comes to example, before we talk about what's happening to buyers in the market right now, we always tell you never sacrifice on an area, right? It, it, and sometimes you have to just because of affordability and some other things. In this instance, we didn't have to because of affordability. This is back in the day as well, prior marriage and ended up buying in South County and just for, I don't know why, quite frankly, it just seemed like, I guess the right decision at that time for whatever reason, ended up being in like a family community when I was younger, she was younger, we weren't in that family environment mentally and just didn't enjoy being there. And so we weren't really big fan of the location, but what we tried to do was make ourselves fan of the location by doing things like a swimming pool and doing different things to the house to make it what we wanted. When in all reality, the real answer was to not be there to start with. And so what we ended up doing was putting a pool into a house and, and doing all these upgrades and then ended up selling the house almost immediately once it was completed. Fortunately, we didn't lose money because the market was still doing well at that time. But I think having a plan, thinking it through, the things that we talk about all the time are important in whether you're buying a house, doing something else, is creating a plan first and then following that plan or sticking to that plan. Like I mentioned, I'm the kind of person, there is no plan. Just whatever happens is the plan. It can work out, but having a plan typically works out better. So that said, Josh, I think transitioning into what we're seeing buyers, sellers at the moment do that we feel are mistakes, maybe not mistakes in everybody's eyes, but where they could be putting themselves in that position to overthink things or not take action because of media headlines, that sort of thing. You have on here, one of those things is sacrificing on important things just to buy a house. We do regularly talk about here on the show, the importance of buying a home for building your financial foundation. The most important thing you can do, the most important things you can do for happiness and a solid financial foundation is find a partner to get into a relationship with, get a solid career, buy a home and invest in a 401k. Like those four things, if you just did that, so you have dual incomes, a partner you like, you buy a home, you live there for an extended period of time and you put 10% of your income in a 401k, you're going to arrive 25, 35 years down the line. You're going to look around and go, hey, this is pretty good. But I have a potential client and we're going through it and I'm looking at it like, why are you saying such a low number? I'm seeing that we can qualify you for this. You're telling me you can afford this. And we start talking. And what he said is we have two children and it's important to me. They go to a certain school and that's $1,200 a month for each. So $2,400 a month. 
And that was important to them. And he had some very good and very valid reasons. We have to adjust our thinking, not from what can you qualify for to what should you buy so that you can do both of these things. And childcare, schooling, those things are not the only thing, but it is important to remember that it relates back to, we talk all the time. People will ask me, Josh, how much can I afford? I've got no idea how much you can afford. I know what I can qualify you for to make sure you are thinking through what is important in life, what are the things that you want to do, and make sure that home ownership doesn't prevent you from being able to do those things. Again, we will go back and I will say owning a home is incredibly important. We did an episode a couple months ago. If you're not going to buy, what do you need to do? And you need to massively ramp up your other savings if you are not going to become a homeowner. But that doesn't mean become a homeowner at all costs and that sacrificing anything and everything else that you want to do is worth it just to own a home. No, I agree. And one of the other things that we mentioned earlier is the need to find the perfect home right now. I do believe that you shouldn't sacrifice on things like bedrooms and school district and certain things that are important to you or buying something just to buy it without thinking where you're going to be in a couple of years. And what I mean by that is oftentimes I'll have a client looking at, say, a three bedroom house. Three bedrooms important because, hey, we want a guest room for when family comes in and we're planning on having a child or whatever. So we want that third bedroom. And then what happens is inventory is low, market's crazy, things are selling quickly and they go, maybe I'll just consider a two bedroom house. And so let's back up. Let's talk about why that's not a good idea. One, less desirable for the most part. Don't appreciate as much as say a three bedroom would harder to sell, just different things that you need to think through. Now, for some people, it's still the right decision and that's okay. But as long as we're talking about them and thinking about them and not making an irrational decision just to do something because the other is harder or more difficult, that's okay. But have we thought it through? Yes, we have. Okay, we're ready to move forward. Same thing goes when people are considering like a studio. Nothing wrong with a studio condo, but harder to sell, less people interested in them. The same things I talked about a minute ago. And what happens is those are the properties sitting on the market because there's less people interested in them. So the two bedroom that you really want or the one bedroom that you really want, yeah, those are moving quickly because there's more people interested in them. Why isn't one selling? So don't sacrifice on those things just to get into the market. And I think we've seen FOMO over the last couple of years. We've seen people sacrifice and do crazy things, waive contingencies. And in some cases, that's okay. It's okay to waive some contingencies, waiving all contingencies, never seeing the property in person and doing these things. Those are things that could end up biting you later on because again, the action is happening too quickly in many cases. And Josh, another thing I wrote down here is basically letting others dictate your decision on buying a house. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And what I mean by that is it's the right time in your life. You're married, you're getting married, you're planning on having kids, but yet you're giving way too much credence and paying way too much attention to what 
YouTubers are saying about the market, what CN or MSNBC just put on their headline and or Forbes, for example. And yeah, it's bad. It's whatever. I'm not going to do it because of this. I'm going to wait for better times. That's okay if you wait for better times, but just understand why you're waiting and don't get caught up in everything that's going on around you because it's a clickbait, if you will. And I think your plan is if you say, hey, today is not the right time for me. Here's my plan. The majority of Americans want to be homeowners. They may not want to do it today. They may not make the decision to become a homeowner today, but they still want to be homeowners. So if your decision is today is not the right time for me, I think it's important to define the criteria of when the right time would be. You had talked about fear of missing out. I think we have a lot of people today that have a fear of getting in. A lot of our prime home buyers, 32, 33, 34, 35 years old, they were teenagers when many of their parents were losing homes, doing short sales, going through much of the distress that you talked about. So that's their point of reference. That's their memory. So they want to avoid that at all costs. So we have no lack of websites, headlines, YouTube videos talking about for the literally the last five to seven years about the housing market is going to crash. And there are incredibly obvious dissimilarities between that market and this market. Does it mean that home values can't come down? No, it doesn't mean they can't come down. It means there's absolutely nothing even resembling the recipe for what people are fearing is happening. And I'll go back. One of the stories that we tell here on the show, Jeb, is my wife's friend's parents. They literally bought at the absolute peak at the market. And here they are 17 years later, sitting on a million dollars of equity with an incredibly low mortgage payment heading into retirement with the opportunity to sell that property, put some money in the bank and go to Tennessee where they want to go and buy a home cash. That was the worst perfect storm, terrible crash ever buying close to the absolute peak of the market and just riding it out and going through it. So that's your worst case scenario. If you have a long-term time horizon, you make sure you're buying something you can afford in an area you want to be and you're willing to ride it out. But that being said, that is incredibly unlikely to happen. We've talked about here, we're more likely to see mean reversion through a sideways trending market for the foreseeable future. Just saw a headline two days ago, Robert Schiller, the creator of the Case Schiller Home Price Index, one of the big people screaming from the mountaintops in 2005, 2006, this is a bubble, this is going to end poorly, basically said the same thing. He says, I see this market trending sideways for the next several years until we get to better fundamentals in terms of more income and lower interest rates. Just a long way of saying, there's no similarity between then and now. You have to know where you're at, what you want, all of the decisions that Jeb had talked about, your time frame, your situation with your relationship. And when those things work out, do not let the noise keep you from entering into the market at a time that should be appropriate for you and your family. Yeah. Along the same lines, so many people are worried about the price of their home, right? They follow it every day. They look at it like it's a stock, like they have to sell it. Or in fact, some people don't even sell the stock. They just look at the price every day. You should not be looking at your home value every day. Your home value, the price of what your home can sell means zero, absolutely nothing unless you need to sell your home. So if you buy the home, hypothetically 500,000 and it drops to 400, for example, 20% drop means nothing. All you do is continue to make your mortgage payment, live your life, do whatever you were doing prior to it. And at some point, you know, it's going to come back up in value. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm just saying, stop worrying about the price. 
worry about where you are in your life, the affordability, can you do it, having savings, having a longer term time horizon, and you'll be good. Josh, last thing, what about the idea of people thinking, hey, it's less expensive to rent in my market than it is to own? Is that a valid reason for somebody to take a step back and consider one over the other? It's a reason to pause and think it through. Go back. When I'm saying in 2010, I'm screaming from the mountaintops, everyone that wants to buy a house should buy a house. It's because even in expensive Southern California, you could own with a minimum down for less than it costs to rent in most areas. Now we see the flip side of that. If you want to own a home, it's going to cost you more than rent. And people look and they say, why would I do this? I'm super happy where I'm at and I don't want to pay $1,000 more. $1,500 more. It's a short-sighted view if homeownership is right for you over the long haul, because those dynamics are unlikely to reverse. Even if home values stagnate for three, five, seven years, rents are unlikely to stagnate. So the example that I have, a friend of yours referred a friend of theirs, and we went through the numbers. They're up in Redondo, young couple, they make good money. $130,000 each. So about $260,000 household income. They have 5% down. They want to buy an $850,000 place. That payment with the HOA dues would be about $6,800. And they were a little bit shocked when they heard that. So I said, okay, what does it cost you in current rent or rent for similar things you would like to buy? 5,000 minimum, realistically something nice, 5,500 to 6,000, but 5,000. Okay. So call it 5,000. That's a $1,700 savings. If we have 3% rent appreciation in less than 10 years, the rent will be more than the mortgage. If rates drop from 675 to 5.25, so not back to four or three, but somewhere in the low fives, that payment drops to $6,000 a month. Over 10 years, if you have a 3% appreciation, that $850,000 house goes to almost a million two and you pay the mortgage down to $690,000. So you're sitting on $460,000 of equity in 10 years, and your house payment is less than what the rents are. If you don't get a chance to refinance, it's a couple dollars less. If you get a chance to refinance to the low fives, it's seven or $800 less. And again, when I say kids, these guys are 31, 32 years old. So 10 years forward, they're gonna be 40, hitting their prime earning years. If they're making 130 now, they're probably gonna be making 170, 180 a piece. So people don't take into account how life changes over time. So something that is a stretch, something that is a little uncomfortable right now, if you can afford it and you can qualify without sacrificing the things that we talked about early, it is worth paying more to own a home than it is to rent. No one wants to. In a perfect world, we wouldn't do that, but that's the world that we're in. And in less than 10 years, in the most likely case scenario, you're going to end up in a better position as an owner than as a renter. We have a lot of people, Jeb, we have a couple clients that literally, I think you referred them to me in 2014 was when I first talked to them. We're in 2023. I believe I've talked to them every two to three years since then. And they look at it and they talk themselves out of it. And they look at it and they talk themselves out of it. I'm curious. They are 10 years later. I got to find out. Ten who is this? But yeah, the good stuff. So hopefully our mistakes helped you understand, you know, that 
it's still worth it, right? We've both made mistakes, but yet we've both are now in a position where homeownership makes up a large percentage of our financial net worth and will put us in a better position long-term. With that said, I guess the easiest and best advice, Josh, is our slogan here at the channel, which is buy right, borrow smart, build wealth. Doesn't happen immediately, takes time, but those three things right there will set you up for success. Until next time, adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.